0: see you all. See your faces. It's so nice. Um, if you're outdoors, really happy to see you out there. I mean, I can't see you right this second, but I did see you just a second ago. And If you're uh, joining us online, really, really, really glad you're doing that. Let, let us know you're here. Uh, send something in that little chat box. Say hello. Say hey to your neighbor. All those things. Um, so if you are new here, been with us, let me just kind of catch up to speed on where we are. We are in week 11. Week 11 of a really long series that may take us years um, called the Gospel of Luke, right? And so here's kind of the reminder of why we're doing this. There's four uh, biographies about Jesus's life that we find in the scriptures in the New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. And so the way that we think about those four biographies is there's these four different guys who, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, write these accounts of Jesus's life, right? Because if you don't know much about the Bible, there's kind of two different parts, right? You got the Old Testament, which we'll refer to a lot as the the promises, right? You see it from the very beginning. God spoke the world into existence, invited um, humans into it, created them to be in relationship with him, right? And so the whole purpose of all this stuff, even today, is that God wants you and him to be together forever, right? And that's been the promise from the very beginning, that God created a, a way by which we could be with him. In fact, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, what it tells us is God walked in the garden in the cool of the night, meaning in the very beginning, it was us and God, and we were all together. And uh, Essentially what happens with Adam and Eve and then the rest of us is we kind of walk away from God's presence, right? We just go, nope, we want to do our own thing. So the whole Old Testament is a reminder that one day God would uh, make a way where there is no way. So the whole Old Testament is this promise that one day, one day, God would make everything right again. Everything, un, uh, everything sad would become untrue, right? You have sadness in your life, and every time you cry or feel deep pain or have anxiety, can't sleep, It's kind of your body, your mind, your brain. We'll talk a lot about that today. uh, Telling you that something's off, right? And so the whole Old Testament is just acknowledging that something is off and that there was a promise, right? So Old Testament's about the promise. That would mean the New Testament's all about this word, fulfillment. And so the fulfillment of all the promises that one day God would make a way, that one day God would uh, bring about a way by which we could be with him again forever, right? C.S. Lewis says it this way. uh, You find that uh, there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you. Right? That's where we are. That's definitely where your kids are, right? They're bored. They're exhausted. They find that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you. You've tried it. You've tried the bottle. You've tried the pill. You've tried the new job, the new spouse, whatever it is. If we find that nothing in this world can satisfy us, then perhaps perhaps it means that you were actually meant for a different world right so promises one day God will make all that uh, uh, everything sad, untrue, and so those are promise fulfillment is God is actually going to do these things and the way by which he fulfills it is he does all the work, pays all the price right and so religion is man's attempt to either become God or get to God all those things, and Christianity is God's perfect attempt to fulfill all the promises and reconcile himself. To man. And so that's the fulfillment, right? And so four different biographies about Jesus' life all tell us about that fulfillment. That there is a way by which we can have right, a connection to God. And it's not based on your merit or your abilities, but based on what Jesus did. In fact, uh, Luke kind of hinges everything about this fulfillment on the person and work of Jesus. In fact, he tells us in Luke chapter 1, I think it's verse 4, 5, and 6, you see some really neat stuff where he says, I write these things so that you may have certainty about the things you've been taught regardless of whether or not you're a believer, believe in Jesus, the one thing I do know about you, as I know about me, I know about all of us, is that all of us would like to have a little bit more certainty in our world, in our, even what the next three months looks like. Uh, we'd like to have some more certainty about what happens in November with election time, and there's all these things that we'd like to have some more certainty, and Jesus says, you want certainty. I'm going to give you certainty, and what you're going to have certainty is, is in me. Luke's going, "Once want you to have certainty in Jesus. So we've just kind of been working through the, the biography about Jesus' life each and every week. And so Luke kind of compiles this whole thing. He takes all the eyewitness accounts he would have gone and done interviews, right? He goes and reads all the written documents about him. So he had actually read the Gospels of Matthew and Mark because Luke was written a little later. And he went and sat down with all the preachers and teachers of the oral traditions and he takes all the stuff and he compiles it all so that we can have certainty about the things that we have been taught and so if Luke's going to take years if not a decade or more to put all this together it would make sense that we would be pretty intentional about walking through it week after week so if you're if you're a Christian really really good that you're here because we're really going to help you get some certainty particularly about a new word today you're probably aware that this word right here salvation Right? What does that mean? And we got to figure that out. So, um, for those of you who kind of been journeying with this for a while as believers and followers of Christ, really, really uh, good day for you to kind of firm up and get some more resolve. For you know, if you're brand new to this thing, we we haven't forgotten about you. Definitely still worth your time because you're going to understand a lot about who God is, a lot about how much He loves you, and a lot about. The work that he does for, does for one reason, so that you and him could be together forever, right? The fulfillment is one day everything sad will become untrue, and the goal of all that is that you and God would be forever. I told you last week as we kind of began, kind of the, the big idea of last week's sermon is this, uh, Jesus, who's the fulfillment of all the promises, is always, really important word there, right? You don't use those words in arguments because always and never are dangerous ones, and they're Rarely, if ever true, but here I feel comfortable use it. Jesus is always, always preparing, you me, all of us, always preparing us for what he has prepared for us, and what he has prepared for us is really, really good, and that preparation is all about this word salvation. And so that word literally means to be delivered, right? If there's a place that we are, and a place we're supposed to be, then Jesus is actually going to be the one who brings us, takes us from where we are to where he'd have us to be, which is with him, right? So you know the anxiety of sending something in the mail, right? You have all sorts of opinions about mail service right now and voting, right? You're, you're all there. And, uh, and you know, some of the suspicion about all those things is uh, whether or not, you, if you put something in your mailbox, pull the flag, or drop it off at the UPS store, whether or not it'll actually arrive, right? So that, that word salvation is, really has the same kind of um, implications. It literally means that there is a, a destination And there is a time and a place where that thing, us, that that item is supposed to arrive. And what Jesus tells us is he is the one who does the delivering. He's the one who saves us. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So Jesus is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. What he has prepared for us is really, really good. And what that preparation is that one day he will deliver you. And he will deliver you back into God's kingdom. Invite you back into his presence. And here's the crazy thing. So if you've grown up in church or not, one of the things you hear a lot about is that the way that happens is one day you die and then you, you, like your soul just kind of floats off into some obscure place where the care bears live and the clouds, right? And one day your delivery will be that one day, if you pray the prayers, do enough stuff, all that kind of stuff, one day one day, one day, you can be right with God and one day you'll get heaven and you won't die, all those kind of things, right? Which is not what the scriptures say. Here's the crazy thing. Not only is that not all that God's promising somewhere in the future. Salvation? Hear me, hear me delivery, access and relationship and closeness in God's presence is available to you today. Right? If you're a Christian, really, really I want you to get this so that we can start living like we get to live in this salvation today. And if you're not, what a great time for you to to consider those things. And I understand this is brand new to you. It seems like folklore and myth and legend. It's not. There's a real human who was God. He stepped on this planet. And he was murdered for this statement that you can have delivery that you can be saved, that you can be with God. And he goes, the reason you can be with God is because I am actually God. And I'm making a way where there was no way. And he literally was murdered, brutally beaten and murdered because of those statements, that they could have access to God now. And then they put him in the grave and there's this deep moment of mourning for all of Jesus' followers. There's this scoffing happening for all the Roman Empire. And everybody just thinks that's the end, where there is no certainty anymore. And then a couple days later, Jesus comes back to life proven that he's God literally history captures it there is no tomb where Jesus' body lays there's no place you can go in the Middle East and go lay the flowers and go I'm so sad that God died because he came back to life and so we get to sort through that and so what Luke is writing to us is going hey could you actually believe that the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave is the same power that's available to you not later today and so you know, it'll be a good time if you don't believe that just to tell God oh that's silly Right? Like, just think about it and go, oh, that's weird. And then go, okay, but I'll take a few moments to be curious about this. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to be curious about this. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3. And finally, 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 we're going to hear about the way by which we find salvation. And so what's interesting is the first uh, two chapters of the Gospel of Luke cover a lot of ground. In fact, they cover 30 years. 30 years. And so what I told you in the past is that uh, the, Luke actually writes 1,151 verses. Right, it's a lot of a lot of words, a lot of verses, and here's what's so crazy: of those 1,151 verses, 568 of them are direct quotations from Jesus. Right, and what's crazy is the majority, right? 560 plus of them all come from a very specific couple year period in Jesus' life. Right, Uh, the last couple years of uh, his life before he, you know, gets murdered and then comes back to life, and then captures some moments that he, Jesus, gives some more instructions and understanding to his followers post his death and resurrection so most of those 568 verses are going to happen as we start reading today not going to get any more today the only thing we've gotten from Jesus so far is as a 12-year-old little adolescent boy with a you know prepubescent um, mustache and uh, he's interacting with some teachers and what he says is don't you know that I'm about my father's house got to be close to my father's presence got to be about his business and so we know no no what Jesus is doing preparing For is the fulfillment of what we get access to, which is God himself. And so that's where we're going to be today in Luke chapter 3. So two years, two years, I'm sorry, two chapters covers 30 years of life. And now we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let me read it to you. It's going to be up on the screens. And it says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Adderrida, Trachonitis, and Lazionus Tetrarch of Abilene. There we go. That's exactly how you pronounce those things. Let me, let me go through it again. Uh, in the 15th year the region of the uh, reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's the one in charge, that's the emperor, uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, so he's the one over this small region in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has like many st- kind of what we'd call states you got Judea you got Samaria you got a Galilee you got all these different ones and we have this guy Pontius Pilate he's going to make some more appearances one significant one at the end of Jesus's life that he's governor of Judea and it says Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and so it's another word for governor but basically for the whole Roman Empire it was divided into four parts And this guy, Herod, was responsible for one-fourth of the entire Roman Empire, right? So it's a little bit of geography, but it's bigger than just the nation of Israel or whatever else we have there. So Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother, Philip, who's covered another region of, and I can't pronounce these, Iturri and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Aveline. So you go, well, why in the world do we have all these weird names? And this is what happens. We'll get to more of this when we read genealogies where you get to these things in the Bible and you just kind of want to skip through them real quick. you just like, I don't know the names. It doesn't make any sense to me. You've got to see this. you got to understand this. So, what's happening here is, remember, Luke was a, uh, a doctor uh, who was hired by this guy named Theophilus, probably a Roman official, who probably reported to one of these guys, right? And he was hired uh, to basically go and do an investigative work, and so basically like a thesis or a dissertation where he's going to go and study and meet with all these people, and then he's going to put together this this big uh, thesis or dissertation about Jesus' life, right? And so uh, if you've ever had to write any academic papers, one of the things that's really, really important in academic papers is citations, right? You have to, uh, depending on uh, which way you wrote, APA, you know, Turabian, whatever it is, there's, you do one of two things. You put these footnotes, and either on the bottom of each page, it tells you where you got the information from, or you have this works cited page where you just tell them to look later and the end of, in, at the end of the 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 dissertation or the thesis you could go and see the references but it's really important that you have references so that if you want to learn more or want to actually see if it's actually true you can go and read those other books go to the library google it whatever it is to get some more information now in the first century there was no google shocker right no google there were libraries but even those libraries were hard to kind of work through and get access so there wasn't like there was a ton of information that was just readily at your hands So this idea that Luke would have gone through and compiled all this is astonishing and very helpful for the first century Christians and very helpful for a guy like Theophilus who's trying to understand whether or not he could be certain that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not Lord, right? And so the way by which writing would have happened in the first century, the way that they would have provided references are footnotes and citations was actually to reference real human beings. Like he's going to say their name. He's going to say where they're from, and he's going to say his relationship, uh, their relationship, right? This is where you'll see Simon, son of, uh, you know, some guy, son of Cy, Simon of Cyrene, right? All these different things where there's actually referencing real people. So when people got this in 60, 70 AD, when they would have read it, they would have gone, oh, I know who Tiberius Caesar is. Oh, I know who Pontius Pilate is. Hey, I know where Philip was, right? This is a way to go. You can actually check. His work Really, really important that you see that. Now, the other thing that really is helpful here is because we get all this information, it allows us to kind of uh, take all those different uh, you know, circles and go, okay, Herod was a, a governor or a teacher arc. You got you know, Tiberius Caesar. So you have all these things. You kind of draw lines and circles between them, and you can actually find a specific time in history when these things would happen. So, we have a pretty good idea that this happens in 29 AD. So we have a good idea of about where this is. So this would be 29 AD. And the reason we know that is because of all this information about the different officials. So what Luke is doing right now is he's helping us understand. This is the politics of the day. This is the regime going on. And you've got to understand this. This Tiberius Caesar was a horrible, horrible man. Horrible, horrible man. He killed his own mother. Right? I mean, he, he would... Have people, he would, have, he would hide stuff in people's bags and then their stuff, and then he would have someone pull them over. And then, if they did any kind of sin, anything that was against the Roman Empire, he would make sure they were murdered. This guy was responsible for a lot of death. I mean, he is a tyrant, a horrible, horrible man. So, we can look at our world and be compli- uh, frustrated or hopeful, regardless of where you land on. Um, political sides about how hard this world is and how dangerous it is and I'm just going, hey, I get that and I don't want to make light of your opinion or your views of our current political climate but I will be clear to say, hey this is nothing like it was. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible time in history. And for the Roman Empire, it's just going to get worse. You got this guy, and then another guy, then another guy. Then you have Nero, right? The one who literally would take Christians, because they're Christians, and put them on stakes and line his pathway into his large palace. And the way by which he lit up the pathways, he would light them on fire. So this is a horrible moment. So these guys are, uh, so as Luke is writing this, he's going, you've got to know the kind of the political landscape. So it's really important, uh, I want to draw the lines between talking about politics and you know and 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 the Bible But you can see here in the scriptures that they uh, sometimes kind of um, intersect Which is why starting next week we will be in uh, continuing the gospel of luke and luke chapter 3 and luke chapter 4 But we will be kind of starting a new series. just kind of a kind of a refocus called jesus for president Right that there really is a leader of the free world his name is Jesus. And he's not someone who's going to fix things later. He literally came to rule and reign now. And so we've got to kind of change our perspective to put all of our, instead of putting our hope in stock in, you know, a donkey or an elephant, right? All of our hope in stock in either Biden or Trump. Got to stop going, this is the solution to these things. And you're going to go, no, the solution for all these problems is Jesus and his church. By the way, God's original design for how people were taken care of was never going to be politics you know what his design was you and i can read even in uh, in you know christian history of america right uh, there's a great book called jesus skeptic right and in it, it tells you where health care comes from where orphan and adoption care comes from where widows were taken care of where all the original hospitals in the united states of america started and guess where they all started With the gospel invading humans' lives, right? Jesus in his spirit calling people to be the church, right? You see in the Old Testament, you see where God created, he creates two things, right? He first creates marriage, you got it? Right, he he creates that. You got Adam and Eve. And then the next thing, he creates is family. Adam and Eve have some children. And you see the original construct for how life was supposed to happen was going to be within a family. Human growth and development happens with a family. But you can keep reading the Old Testament and go, well, that doesn't go very well. One of the boys kills the other boy, right? And so the whole Old Testament is just this flawed, broken system. And so how in the world is God going to set those institutions, marriage and family, back in the right order? Well, he gives us another institution. Jesus comes and he establishes, and what he establishes, is his church. His church is the solution for all these things, right? So we, we sound really ignorant when we start screaming and yelling about whatever politician isn't doing the thing that we think they should do. Because guess what? God's plan wasn't for those politicians to do it. His plan was for you and I to do it. So when you see this, these political moments, the hope of the world is actually Jesus and his church. So, what we're going to do over the next six, seven weeks is uh, we're going to reset those things and take personal ownership, right? Uh, Andy Stanley has a great series, and you can go listen to it uh, from a couple years ago, called The United States of America, but it's Y-O-U instead of U-N-I-T-E-D, right? This idea that the way that we are as a nation has to be with us taking personal responsibility. So, for the next six, seven weeks, we're going to or five, six weeks, we're going to really go, with, okay, Jesus is Lord, and he came to rule and reign. What does that mean for the church in 2020? So next week, regardless of where you land politically, it'll definitely be worth your time. All about Jesus. And, by the way, got some people who are really confused about stuff. Next week will be a really good um, opportunity to invite them in the church. We'll be kind and compassionate, but we're going to work back through the real hope for where we are in 2020, by the way, is the church, and we are, completely primed for this because people are continuing to turn over rocks and go that's not going to fix it that didn't fix it that won't fix it i are just going to be candid with you guys and you're not going to like this whoever becomes president whether that's donald trump uh, president trump or vice president biden in 2020 he is not going to fix the problems in our country or in your life whoever gets nominated to this supreme court isn't going to be the solution for our problems the solution for the problems as you and I holding hands and moving forward in the gospel. So next week, come back, but stay here today. And so the first thing that Luke does, he's establishing what's going on within... The, the, the political you know, structure of the, of, of the world. So he gives us all these lists. Now what he's going to do, so he just showed all that, and a lot of people have a lot of hope. Those guys are going to fix it. These guys are, weren't going to fix it, right? And now he's going to pivot, and he's going to show uh, you the, the other landscape, the other institution, government and the other institution kind of happening in, in the first century, and watch what he says next. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So first he shows us the, uh, the political climate. Here's all the people. And then he's going to go, okay, now here's the actual religious people. Here's the who's who of the religious you know, Pharisees in the first century. So he shows us the reign and the rule of what's happening in religion in the first century. So you got the political one and the religious one. By the way, God's plan for the restoration of our world also wasn't religion wasn't religion is man's attempt to either get to god or become our own god and so what you're going to see is you're going to see these guys that are going to be real blowhards with the things they say and they're going to tell people all the stuff they should listen to right and they're going to gravitate to all these things and what they're going to say is if more people would give them their money more people would come to their synagogues if more people would submit to their authority then they too can fix the problems of the world and what's going to happen is, is they're going to want a lot of power and control to the point that Jesus is going to rise up and people are going to stop, start following him because he's going, hey, I'm going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And what happens is that even these religious guys, because they want their power and authority and control, they're going to turn their backs on the God of the universe and murder his son. So religion's not going to fix this. Religion's not going to fix this. Our government and politics aren't going to fix this. The only one who can, and has promised to, is Jesus and the way by which he's going to do it is by taking his Holy Spirit and empowering his people to be his hands and feet right now. So we're going to keep looking at that. So right what we have here is Luke's established, both that in Luke chapter one, uh, 3, 1, and 2. And so it says during the high priesthood of Annas Caiaphas, and then he's going to reintroduce us again to a guy you've already learned about, John the Baptist, right? So this is the guy that when Luke decided... Uh, to start his biography to get the hook so we would pay attention to jesus he actually starts with this old couple who are going to have this child and this is the reason because even as luke has given us pro, uh, the gospel of luke to understand the fulfillment right what he's going to start with is again the promise so what happened in the old testament is god told people he would make a way where there is no way that he was going to love them and he was going to care for them and they, he we learned some words, covenant, meaning God's always going to do what he's going to do, and providence, meaning God is always at work, bending and shaping all things for our good and his glory, right? So the whole Old Testament is promising us those things are happening, that then the New Testament fulfills it in Jesus. So what Luke's going to do is he's going to remind us of that in the first couple of chapters and going, hey, there is a sign, there is a way by which this is going to happen. Because what was happening for uh, the Jews and Israel, all, all the world really is going, God, if you love us so much, how can we be certain of that? If you really have a plan how can we know we're not going to miss the plan, right? If there really is a way by which you're going to establish your kingdom back on this earth in a better way, we don't want to miss out on that. Like, you know, like uh, literal FOMO, like fear of missing out. They're going, God, we really, really need to know what's going on. Can you tell us how we can know it's going to be you and not miss you? And so God, throughout the Old Testament, gives us these things called prophecies where he would speak to an individual who would then speak it out of the nation going, hey, this is how you know that the promise is about to be fulfilled, and one of the things that happened in the book of Isaiah, 700 years earlier, God told the Isaiah, and we're going to look at most of what he said, or some of what he says today. God told Isaiah to tell them that one day he would send a messenger, a trumpeteer of sorts, who would come and declare that Jesus has come to fulfill all promises, right? And so he says, You can look, because what's going to happen is before the Savior comes, there's going to be another guy who's going to come and make that declaration. He's going to say, Repent. You'll learn about that word today. Um, For the kingdom of God is really near. And so what's happening here is Luke starts the Gospel of Luke 1 and 2 to prepare us for this, and now he's going to pivot back to John the Baptist. And remember, we're now you 29, 30 A.D., so John the Baptist is going to be in his late 20s, actually early 30s, so we find John the Baptist, and so he goes, hey, as a reminder, there is John the Baptist. He is the son of Zechariah the priest, and it even tells us where he's going to be. In the wilderness. This is really important because Luke has already established that you got the political issues of the day, you got the religious issues of the day, and you got those institutions. Well, John the Baptist is going to be set apart. He's not coming from a religious sense. He's not coming from a political sense. He is his own man, preaching the good news of who Jesus is. And so, all of a sudden, uh, Luke's going to help us see this guy. So we find John the Baptist here, and we go, "Well, what's he up to? What's he doing?" And what John the Baptist is going to do is remind him of so many promises from the Old Testament. In fact, what you can see here, you see that statement says, the word of God came to John. 222 times. In the Old Testament, when we're talking about promises, 222 at least, maybe more. 222 times where it says, the word of God came to an individual so they could speak it over a nation. So this is more of that promise, the word of God came to John. Now watch what it says. And he went to all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sin. So we're gonna got a lot to look at here. We've got a couple words. One we got baptism, right? And then we got the word repentance. Really, really important that we understand this word. So baptism, repentance, forgiveness, and what is it being forgiven from? Sin. Okay. So uh, so what Luke is going to say is, hey, you've got to understand what John the Baptist is doing. He's the trumpeter. so what's he talking about? He's not the one who saves, but he's helping people understand how they get aligned in this region and the regime. right? If it's not a political hope, if there's not a religious hope, all the hope is in Jesus, well, how do we join his team? How do we get on his campaign trail, right? How do, we, how do we do that? So what's happening right now is Luke's going, you've got to understand exactly how you get on Jesus' team. And John the Baptist is going to show you how you can be invited and participate in Jesus' team. And there's some things. There's baptism, repentance, and forgiveness of sin. So really, really important that you understand this. That word sin literally means, uh, properly here, having no share of something, right? Uh, it means the loss or Forfeiture. What this, The way you can see this about sin in, in kind of a banking term, it would have been like sin is like foreclosure, right? Sin is where you had something and you lose the rights to it because you couldn't have met the, the requirements. Like in a foreclosure, you can't pay the bill, you can't pay the mortgage. Eventually, after enough time, the house gets taken away from you and it no longer is available to you, right? Because you could not perform the duties of the contract. So in a sense, the word sin literally means you forfeit rights or forfeit your share. And so the way that we can view sin all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is that Adam and Eve and all of humans had, had, had property, had availability, had a share in God's kingdom, right? So the Garden of Eden, and there's homes in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have a house. You got it? And God goes, okay, here's the economy of the day. Enjoy, eat, drink, do it all. Like, have a great life, right? All these things. And he says, the only thing I don't want you to do is not trust me, not follow me. And so here's, here's going to be the clarity. Hey, Adam, Eve, have all this. And trust that I'm good. But don't touch that. Right? And you go, that's so crazy. God, why in the world would you dangle this carrot? And it's going, hey, the point wasn't the carrot. Right? And so he says, don't touch that. You have access to everything else. And the one thing that Adam and Eve wanted was the very thing that God told them not to touch. And go, why would God do that? Uh, for their own by the way. And so the purpose of the fruit, same with the purpose of the Ten Commandments, was actually to give Adam and Eve some real clarity that they could not save their own lives, fix their own lives, and they could not manage and take care of the property that God had given them access to. There's no way they could perform well enough to always be in the kingdom of God. So, if they wanted to take care and maintain their rights and being a part of the kingdom of God, there were some responsibilities. So, when God puts the fruit in front of them, what we understand is God basically says, Don't have anything else you want. Enjoy the fruits and the kingdom and the property. You have rights to it all. But stay away from that. They eat it, and all of a sudden it says their eyes are open. And essentially, they get disconnected. They get kicked out. They get, you know, foreclosed on, and they have to move out. Of literally the Garden of Eden in God's kingdom. And the reason they do is so God can help them understand. And Genesis chapter 3, he even reminds us that there will be one day that God will make all things right because Adam and Eve weren't capable of fixing their own problems. You and I aren't capable of fixing our own problems. We're definitely not capable of fixing our country. You're not capable of fixing your family or your kids right? And so what happens, that's what sin is. Sin is just an acknowledgement that we are missing the mark and can't do what's expected of us, right? And so if God has this perfect kingdom, and he wants us to have access to it, and the, the role by which we play has to do with our ability to perform correctly, we're just in big trouble. And so what John the Baptist was doing, he's coming back to the Jews and going, hey, there is an option for you to get your rights, your property, your participation back in the kingdom. And the way that that has to happen is someone else has to pay the price of your your property. Someone else has to buy it back. Someone else has to go and get it out of foreclosure. Someone else has to go and buy it back. And here's the crazy thing. You're not wealthy enough and you're not capable enough to buy this on your own, and so the only way that a debt can be absolved from you is if someone forgives the debt. So when you see these words forgiveness and sin, we think of them as church words, but you got to see in a lot of these things, they're actually banking terms. There is something you owe, and the problem is, what you owe you cannot pay. So if you want access to the kingdom of God, if you want to have rights and His property, you have to pay a price, but the problem is that price is perfection. That's what the Bible says the wages of our sin, the cost of that, is death. Meaning the only way for, for you to get access back to the, the kingdom is if someone pays the price for you to get access. And that price requires that some sacrifice at a great level has to be made. And so when John the Baptist was making this declaration, he was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, meaning you're so close to the property. You're so close to being able to move back you're so close to being able to have access to this. And the only way that you can do it, you see it right there, is through repentance. So we have a problem. It's sin. We have a solution to the problem. It's forgiveness from God. But the way that you have access to the forgiveness is actually this word, repentance. And then we have a demonstration that John Baptist is going to invite these people in and go, hey, you want a new life? He, you can come and trust God's kingdom. You want back into God's kingdom, Then you have to admit that you, don't have, you can't earn it on your own. And so what happened is these guys would come and get into this river, and they would acknowledge that they have no rights and deserve nothing from God. Right? Nothing. And yet they would acknowledge that they so long to be back in God's kingdom and they would plead and ask God to forgive them, to pay the price. And there would be this uh, object lesson. There would be this you know, moment where John would take them and say, do you want to trust that you can be back in God's kingdom for what God has promised, that he would pay the price? And they would go, yes. And what happened is they would put them under the water. Right, and the reason being is that was the old life, the dirty life. Like, literally, this was a bath of cleaning off all the filth. And they'd come back out of, the, out of that moment and declaring that God could forgive them. No, they didn't know how the forgiveness was going to happen. They didn't know if they were going to have to keep slaughtering lambs and making sacrifices of doves. They didn't know if they were going to have to keep praying prayers and eating certain foods and not eating certain foods. They didn't understand that. They just knew that they longed for something, and they longed for a, a kingdom And some real estate that they could not get access to. And so they would make that declaration. And so what's saying here is that John was going, hey, he was participating in this in the baptism, this moment of old life going, new life coming up, this fresh start, this mulligan, right? So that they could repent and have forgiveness of sins. And so it's really, really important. This is where I want to make sure you get this. is um, Because these are all, a lot of times they feel like A bunch of bible words and christian words and you're going well i don't i've heard about repentance because i know the guy holds the bullhorn and screen and tells me that uh, that my sin means i'm going to hell unless i invite jesus into my life so i gotta pray this prayer i gotta ask jesus in my heart it's all sorts of weird and but that's what repentance is and they don't even be defined this way which is a fair definition but we're just missing some pieces in it that repentance is this idea of uh doing a 180 meaning you're going this direction and all of a sudden, you turn back and go a different direction. That's, that's part of the language in it. There's literally this transformation and transition that happens. That literally, you go in one direction and you're almost like you're going completely the opposite direction, right? That's what repentance is kind of defined as. So it means to do a 180, right? But it's a complicated word in, in the Greek because it actually has nothing, hear me, nothing to do with some kind of behavioral change. Right? And so you go, well, I thought everything about, you know, you're supposed to become a Christian, you're supposed to, you know, burn your CDs, get rid of your bad t shirts, right? Leave your old friends, walk in this new life. There's all these behaviors that have to happen. In fact, many of you, your hesitation with becoming a Christian is the fact that you don't want to. You don't want to leave the community you're in. You want to have access to these folks, and you've heard or believed that somehow it means you have got to tuck your shirt in, part your hair, go to church seven times a week, all these different things. And so, the kind of the belief that we said is you repent. You you know you wear nicer clothes, you part your hair, and you sing only Christian songs, and you only listen to the Christian radio station. And you're like, but I like country music, right? You like it, and you're going, well, how does all that work? And so, and so there's just kind of this misunderstanding about what repentance is and what repentance literally, and let's translate a term here. It's metanoia, but it's translated term means to have a change of mind, to change your mind. In other words, and you get this, and psychologically we get this, so the first part of repentance is actually something about your thoughts. It's about what you think about. Literally, it says in Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the Renewing that word renovation of your mind. So it starts with your thoughts, and you know this, you know this. When you think about something enough, think about something enough, right? Uh, What happens is those thoughts actually create your beliefs, right? Enough thinking about something, right? Because we know this. I mean, I know this for me is I can talk myself in or out of anything. If I think about enough, I can actually justify anything, right? You have made some poor purchases as a result of this. You've thought enough about wanting that thing that you kept thinking about enough that all of a sudden you've now transitioned your beliefs to affirm what it is you want. Right? Many of you have been in relationships that you shouldn't be in because of this, right? Many of you are still in relationships because of this, right? Because you think it will change and you know, those things. that so you think about enough, think about enough, think about enough, and all of a sudden your thoughts eventually determine your beliefs. Right? It's amazing how this is gonna happen. And you get around people who, you know, share these thoughts and you have all opinion, all sorts of opinions about you know, political environments. You have some opinions even about school systems now, right? And teachers, based on them, how much you've thought about all this stuff. And once you get to the place, you'll have beliefs as a result. And guess what happens? It's actually your beliefs that determine your feelings. For example, if I thought enough my whole life, right, to think that my value, that, that I should be concerned about and worried about what I look like in a mirror, right? So, um... So embarrassing. So I played college basketball. Don't be impressed. I wasn't that good and didn't get to play that much. Um, but I remember going to a, uh, a basketball game up in the Tennessee, Hiawassee, Tennessee. And um, I can remember trying to shoot free throws, right? And, and I was a freshman in college, and they had a pretty rowdy student section, and I was trying to shoot free throws. But I had horrific acne, right? horrific like lots and lots of really bad like zits everywhere and I can remember trying to shoot it and I can remember their entire student section chanting at me pizza face thanks for the care right like pizza face I can remember it and I missed the free throws actually and then actually I sprained my ankle and missed the next couple weeks of basketball but you know what I did as soon as I got back uh, to back to uh, the campus I called my parents and said can you please get me a you know an appointment with a dermatologist Soon, then I get disappointment. And I put all the stuff, and then I get like a really red, shiny face for like months. Then get better, right? Because I had these thoughts that all of a sudden people can make fun of me, and my value had to do with something. So the more I think about this, the more I get consumed by it, right? I thought every time I was interacting with people, they were thinking about that. I can remember watching commercials and it be about proactive solutions. And in my mind, as everybody's watching that commercial, I in my mind are thinking they are all thinking about me and how I need to order this stuff, right? These thoughts become uh, beliefs, and guess what happened? they changed my feelings. I started being really insecure about some pimples on my face, right? And then, all of a sudden, because my thoughts, enough, the turn my beliefs didn't help shape my feelings, it definitely did change my actions. See that? So, when we talk about repentance, we want to jump all the way to the actions piece, but it's not an action thing. It's actually a change the way you think and what you think about. If you change the way you think and what you think about long enough, eventually what happens is your beliefs will change, right? Here's, here's an example. Um, in the scriptures it says, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So, how do you think about that? Well, there's poverty everywhere, God. And there's, you know, sex trafficking. And uh, there's political brokenness. And there's vitriol and hate. This is not a good day. This is not a good day. This is not a good day. Right? If you think about how bad the day is, you read all the news that tells you how bad the day is, eventually your beliefs are going to tell you that our world is broken and there is no hope. Right? And then where does that lead you? In this place of deep, depressed feelings, And then your behavior has the same stuff spewing out of you that you're reading from other places, right? Because our thoughts determine our beliefs, our beliefs determine our feelings, and our feelings determine our actions. So we have to start and go, well, God tells us this is a day that we should rejoice and be glad in it. So instead of walking in with contempt or judgment towards God, to go, what if this is the day that God has made? What if that's true? What if today God is going to give you everything you need to appreciate and enjoy life and participate in life and find joy and hope in it. What if that's the case? So if we get up every day thinking of those things, God, I know you're going to meet me today. God, I know you're going to be there today. God, I know you're available to me. Guess what's eventually going to happen? Your beliefs are going to change. And then your feelings are going to change. And then your actions are going to follow in suit. Right? And so when we think about this forgiveness of sin, that word repentance literally is acknowledging that there is a better way to live. So that repentance means, God, I've tried my own plan, but my plan continues to put me in the same path over and over again. So God, today, today I'm choosing to decide. I'm choosing to think about your plan. I'm choosing to think about what you have for me, God. I'm, I'm not going to be in charge of the things. And as you think about it, what it eventually happens is your beliefs change, then your feelings change, and then your actions change. So if you get your feelings hurt a lot, a whole bunch, feel really hurt and oppressed a lot, you got to figure out, okay, why do you have those beliefs? And the beliefs are always going to start with your thoughts. So we've got to change our thoughts, right? And so John the Baptist is literally declaring to people, you've got to change what you think about and change your understanding of how the kingdom of God works. And what he's saying here is you believe the way that you get access to the kingdom is by, God, by your good performance, and you've got to change the way you think. Because if that's what you think, if you think God loves you because you perform well and he doesn't love you when you perform poorly, then what does that end up doing for you long term? because the reality is you can't perform well it leads you to this place of discouragement and hopelessness and that's what religion does it first leads us to a place of pride wow i'm really good at it and then finally a place of despair so if you have those feelings it has to do with your beliefs and those beliefs have to do your with your thoughts so we get start thinking about the fact that god still rules and reigns and he knows exactly what's going on in 2020 and he is working all those things out for your good do you believe that let start telling ourselves that each and every day. And this is not some psychological mumbo-jumbo. This is really not just trying to psych yourself up or uh, up or down, right? It's literally believing that God is good. Do you believe that? And watch what happens next. So verse 4. I all mean, right, so anyway, so, so what you see here is you have this. Okay, God does it. He changes all these things. So that's uh, 1 uh, th- through 3. And so what you're about to see now is John the Baptist is going to give us a way by which we participate in this, right? So he's going he's to help say this is what he's coming to do. He wants people to uh, bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. He wants people to be forgiven. He wants people to have access to salvation, meaning delivered from where they are to where God has them be. And that's what he wants, right? That's what he wants for all people, including us 2,000 years later. So you go, well, how, how do we participate in that? So you got two different sides. How do you participate in it uh, yourself? How do you participate in these thoughts, beliefs, feelings, actions, and then how do we help other people do this, right? If our world is broken, right, and the only solution for it is actually Jesus, how do we help our neighbors and our coworkers and our children get this? How do, how do we invite them into this, right? And not be manipulative or coercive, but how do we actually invite people in it? And so this is where it's going to sound strange about the next five minutes, so just bear with me, because I'm going to tell you another creepy story, right? So you know about my pizza face, hopefully uh, you'll be gracious to me there and and uh, if ever I get a bump on my face, don't stare at it. Just look up or look down, okay? Um, so, so I've been a pastor 19 years. I'm, uh, I, yeah, started right towards the tail end of my 20th year of life, and I'm 39 now. And um, for about four or five years, we did student ministry, and it was a blast. Lots of students loved it well. And then after that, I was so sad because I'm like, how, how do we help the church? Because what was happening is all these students would come. To church, but then they'd graduate high school, and you know the story, and they'd just, they'd walk away from it, right? They'd just walk away, which is just devastating, just devastating watching. It was neat to see them kind of walking back 20 years later, but it was devastating, and so what I thought was convinced that the problem was is the church didn't care enough about students, so when they graduated high school, they just didn't feel like they were welcome in the church, right? So the solution, I thought, was do college ministry. Right Just do college ministry. So how do we create a college ministry that people come in? And so then uh, Julie and I did a couple years of college ministry, but guess what happened? They would graduate college, and they just walk away from the church. Now, you know, I wholeheartedly believe the solution to that is making sure that it's an intergenerational church where everybody, everybody gets to be included and cared for from baby to, you know, octogenarian, whatever that is, right? And so I wholeheartedly believe that. But at the time, I was saying, God, why are all these people walking away from you? They don't know. And so Julie and I began praying and going, okay, God, what— what is it you want us to do about this? Like, how do we participate in this? If, if that's the case, if all these college students are just walking away from you and the gospel and not believing you're good, and man, I'm seeing it in their actions on Facebook, particularly on Halloween, when they're wearing costumes they shouldn't, and going, what in the world's going on? Like, okay, hey, God, what do we do? How do we, how do we solve this? And um, about the same time, so this was, uh, Julie and I were kind of going, we were in a small group. We were the youngest ones in the group. Julie was... Uh, so 24. I was 27, about that age at the time, and so we're going, okay, God, what is it you want us to do? And at the same time, we're going, okay, not only what do you want us to do in the church, but what do you want us to do for our family? Got two different pieces there, right? And so um, we we're praying and asking those kind of things, and, uh, and it was summer, so we were traveling, and so we spent some time at Julie's parents' house. We spent some time in, uh, you know, uh, St. Mary's, Georgia, and spent some time in Myrtle Beach with student ministry, and so a lot of traveling over a couple of weeks, and something weird happened for me. And um, Every single, I kid you not, every single night I would wake up wide awake at exactly 3 o'clock in the morning. There's no joke, no punchline here. This is not, I feel so weird talking about it because I don't think this is always how God speaks. And so I think a lot of us think, well, God has never done that for me. This is the only time in my life it's happened, so I don't think this is a normal process. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, every single, like 3 colon, Right, zero zero. No matter what it was, whatever the alarm clock was, it wasn't my phone because I didn't have those kind of phones in. So if I were in a hotel, if I were at Julie's parents' house, three o'clock, and then I'd go back to sleep. It'd take me a while, and then I'd wake up again at exactly six o'clock. Right. And to me, that was still middle of the night because I slept till nine. We didn't have any kids. It was lovely. So this wasn't like I was getting up at six anyway. I'd wake up and I'd go back to sleep every single night. And I'm, I'm talking about weeks, two, three weeks, no matter where we were, every single night at, at, at three o'clock and then at six o'clock. And I'm going, what in the world's going on? Now, at the same time, I was reading this book by Tony Campolo called Letters to Young Evangelicals. So he was talking about uh, writing to the next generation of Christians, particularly as it related to like sociology and jumping in on the mission. And what he said in there that was really interesting is he said – that he felt like God always spoke the clearest to him in the Gospels, right? The fulfillment piece. And so I, I remember we were outside of a Belk, and uh, I was waiting to go to the dentist because I had an abscess tooth. And so I hadn't opened yet. So I was just sitting outside of a Belk department store. Julie had gone in, and we were waiting for the dentist. And I just was sitting there. And um, so I was like, okay, God, what, what if this is the case? So what I did is I grabbed my Bible and I opened it to Luke chapter 3, right? 3, verse 6. And let me read to you what it says. And it says this And all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's all it said. And I remember in that moment going, God, that's what I long for. It's that every single man, woman, and child, every college student, every student would, would just see. Your salvation. Just see it, right? Just see salvation. Okay, so God's salvation is such an important part of this, but how, how do they see it? And I remember going, Yeah, yeah, God, that's what I want. Like, how do we do that? That's what I want to participate in. I know I can't fix people. I know I can't save people. I can't even save myself. But so, how do we help people see God's salvation? So, what's interesting is uh, what's happening in this passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 6 is John the Baptist is um, he's, he's quoting this old testament prophecy right so john the baptist in 29 ad right here standing up and he's making this declaration he's not in the political regime he's not in the religious regime he came to offer people forgiveness of sins to see salvation he goes and all mankind will see god's salvation and he tells us what i believe wholeheartedly is a prescriptive way by which people get to see god's salvation Okay, a lot of the scriptures, I think, are d- descriptive, right, to just tell you what's going on. I think there's actually something here that's so important to the point where this has changed everything about my life, everything about ministry, everything about all the things, going, okay, God, we're going to go start a church for this we- reason, right? Just because we want people to see God's salvation. And so this is what it says in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 4, and it says this. As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet, so John the Baptist is reminding us about the promises The voice of one crying in the wilderness. So John the Baptist is going, hey, this was talked about 700 years earlier. I'm now the voice of one. This is Isaiah chapter 40. He's quoting. Voice of one crying in the wilderness. Do what it says next. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled in. Filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And now we have it again. In all flesh will see God's salvation. So here's what I think he's saying. He's going, hey, there are a ton of people in this world, right? Tons of people. So here's a, here's a crowd of people, right? Ton of people. Ton of people in this world. And the only solution to all the problems, all the political issues, all the evil in the world, the only solution is actually Jesus. Right? And there's a ton of people that have no idea, do not know that he had a plan for them, did not invite, know that they have been invited to the plan, didn't know they could have access to God's kingdom again. Had no idea. And the reason being is they can't see Jesus because there's all these things in the way. Right? There's all these issues within the, the world. There's all these political commentaries. There's all these different things that stand in the way. There's literally all these things even in the church, the way church people behave, and the things they say on Facebook. right? All these different things. There's all these things that are keeping all the people from seeing Jesus. And what John the Baptist says, quoting Isaiah, is he's going, hey, we have to prepare the way of the Lord. You want people to get this? You want people to start changing their thoughts and their beliefs and their feelings and their actions? There's a way about what you do it. We want people to see Jesus. Jesus is the solution for this. And he goes, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Remove every mountaintop, fill in every valley, make every crooked path straight so that all mankind can see God's salvation. In other words, through all the church, It's not to fix people, not to save people, not to try to get in these arguments where you convince them you're right or wrong. The whole role of the church is just to remove the obstacles so that people can see Jesus. To make it simple for people to connect to Jesus and one another. The whole role of the church. Everything all day. You want to care for your child? You don't have to force them to believe what you believe. You just got to remove the things that are in the way. That's why the, 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 the American church 300 years ago got so involved in health care and orphan care. You know, want to know why? Those are obstacles for people seeing Jesus, right? That's why the church is so involved and should be so involved in, in poverty issues, right? Because if you can't eat, if you're starving, you're not looking for Jesus. So the first thing we got to do is we got to just remove the obstacles. Why? Because I am convinced, I'm convinced that if people could actually see Jesus the way that we would. They would respond to be so different I'm convinced even in 2020 when all this other brokenness in the world what john the baptist is saying hey church you, you have a role in this and your role is not to fix people Your role is not to give good gotcha moments. Your role is not even to prove a point Your role is to make a difference right in the way that you make a difference is you Get up every single day and you figure out what's in the way of your neighbor Seeing jesus and you remove that Maybe that means you have to be a good neighbor. Maybe that means you have to be friendly Maybe that means you have to cut your grass Right? Are you, your role is to figure out what's in the way for your boss to see Jesus. Maybe that means you gotta work really hard. Maybe that means you, should have, you have to bite your tongue and not say negative things. Right? Your role is to help your children see Jesus. So, what are those obstacles? Right? And all those things we have to go, what are the obstacles and how do we get them out of the way? Because John the Baptist is going, look, you wanna you want do this. The way that you do it is you prepare the way of the Lord. And the way you do that is you just remove all the obstacles. Because the only solution we have, in our broken world is for Jesus to do the work. And the only way that people are going to see Jesus is if all the stuff's out of the way so they can see him and respond to him. So our the, the goal of this church, right, is to make it simple for people to connect to Jesus and one another so that every single man, woman, and child in our community can either accept or reject the claims that Jesus has made, which he is Lord and He is Savior, and He has a good, good plan for all people. And so that's what John the Baptist does, and it says this, this is what Luke offers as a commentary. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Oh, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So John the Baptist going, here's how it works. This is how people uh, hear and see Jesus. Said, in the past, when I've usually taught this, I've kind of landed there in Luke chapter 3, verse 6. In fact, I've never taught this part together, which is interesting, should have, always should have. Because what's going to happen now is Luke's going to go pivot. And I think what he's showing us is the actual obstacles that are in the way. And here's where he's pivoting to. He's not Pivoting to uh, Caesar Augustus or Caesar Tiberius, he's not pivoting to Herod. He's not calling out any of the broken, vile things in our world. Not to begin with. The very first thing he says is he literally looks at the religious people. He is talking to these religious people, who are going, you know what you've done? You've made it more difficult for people to see Jesus, right? You've added all these rules about what you're supposed to wear and what you're supposed to say and how you're supposed to look and what you're supposed to know. So he's going to call out all those obstacles that we've actually been putting in people's way. And he says, you brood of vipers. That would have been a really offensive term because Jews are very aware of what happened in the garden with the the serpent. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now watch what it says there. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, as you repent, there actually should be new actions that happen for you. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, hear me God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So, what he's saying here is, hey guys, here's the thing. You don't think you need to do this because you think you have religious pedigree. You think because you fall from the line of Abraham, you're just covered in the covenant. Right? Because I promised that I would make a way where there is no way. You think that you just get access to that and don't do that. And he's going, you've got to actually walk down the path. Right, there should be fruit. There should be changes in your actions as a result of the way your thoughts, beliefs, and feelings play out as a result of repentance. There should be a, an evidence that you've actually participated in this. Right? You know what the greatest obstacle for people probably not coming to Jesus is they look at people who say they follow Jesus and go, I want nothing to do with them or I don't want to be anything like them. I don't want to say those things. I don't want to be that arrogant. I don't want to be that dogmatic. I don't want to be that disrespectful. Right? So he's going, hey, hey, guys, if you really want to prepare the way, it actually starts with your thoughts and your beliefs and your feelings and your actions. There should be real legitimate fruit. No, God does the work there, but we've got to let him do that work there. Even now, this is what it says. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is this is hard. If you're not a Christian, you can spectate here. But if you are, this is really important, guys. Jesus is literally going, "Hey, this is really binary. It's ones and zeros. You want to participate in the uh, kingdom of God? Here's what you do. You prepare the way. You remove the obstacles. You make you fill in the valleys. You make the path straight." Right, because either you are helping uncover the kingdom of God or you are covering it up. There is no in between. In every interaction, hear me. In every interaction you have, you're doing one of the two things: you're either helping people see Jesus, or you're covering him up. Everything you say, every time you go to a checkout counter, every time you talk to a customer service rep on the phone, every time you interact with your children's teachers, and everything you do, hear me. You are either helping prepare the way of the Lord or you're putting more obstacles in the way. And here's what Jesus is saying. Guys, if you become another obstacle, we got to cut that out. Cut that off. And he uses this language. And throw it in the fire. This is serious, guys. This isn't, you need to change your behavior modification. It means you've got to change the way you think about this. Every single interaction you have is doing one of two things at all times. And so John the Baptist is going, hey, you brood of vipers, hey, religious people, could you stop and consider that maybe you're the biggest obstacle? Could you stop and consider the reason that, you, that your neighbor doesn't know Jesus is because you're not helping them see it. not your job to save them. You can't save them. But could you consider that maybe your interactions could be the obstacle that are standing in the way? And so John the Baptist goes, here's what happens if there's no fruit. Doze it into the fire. You can imagine that's pretty overwhelming. So watch what they do next. And the crowds asked him, well, then what shall we do? Just told you. Literally, Jesus is saying, if you're in the way, I'm going to burn you up. I'm going to throw you in the fire, right? And you go, oh, okay, okay, okay. Then what shall we do? Which I would say, this is the question to ask over and over again, every single morning when you wake up. What shall we do? Now watch what he's going to do real quick. And he answered them. So he's given an answer how you prepare the way of the Lord. He's given an answer of how you make straight paths. He's given an answer for how people can actually see Jesus. And this is what he says. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Hear me, hear me, hear me. This isn't because that's how you get saved by giving your stuff. He's going, hey, hey." if you can change the way you think, right? If you could change the way you think about this. If you could change the way you think then all of a sudden it should change your behavior. So the first thing that you see here is all of a sudden they start asking these questions and there's this real conviction of going, oh goodness, are you saying every single time I participate in this world, every interaction I have is doing one or two things, there should be some confession or conviction. Like, okay, God, something should change. And then there should be some confession. Okay, God, I've not done this right. And what he's saying is there is a path and the path is you've got to confess that you've done it the wrong way and then start thinking about the thoughts. And where he's going to go first is he's going to think about the thoughts that we really struggle with. Because here's what our God is. Our God is this. Comfort and security. You see what he said in that verse? He's going, you have extra things. But you think you need those extra things because you're worried about the rainy day somewhere way out in the future. So you want to hold on. And this idea that somehow you can provide yourself comfort and security if you just have enough. And he's going, you got to change the way you think. you got to change the way you think. It's not about your comfort and security. You will rule and reign with God for eternity. So the amount of stuff you have in your closet or in your pantry is a little consequence for you, but of great consequence for those who have obstacles in the way. So if someone's cold, how are they going to see me because they're just freezing? So what do you do? You give them what you have because your God's not comfort or security. Your God's Jesus. Your God's not having all the things and being in control of all the things. And so he says, hey, if you have extra, you should give it away. Right? This is is the, the transfer of kind of the way we think. What we think about now is why don't I have what I don't have? right? Why are our kids not getting to go to school? Why do I have less money in the bank? Why do I have, why do I, why do I not have what I don't have? The better question is this, why has God given you what he's given you? So he's going, hey, if you have two tunics, why do you have two tunics? Do you need two tunics? No, no, you don't. So why don't you give one away? Again, this isn't how you get saved. This is a response of this repentance that happens in your mind. You're going, I don't need that because I have Jesus, right? And so then he looks at the next one. He says this, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? See the question again? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. You see these tax collectors, they thought they had a ton of control. They literally could walk up to you and say, give me all the money in your wallet. And they had the backing of the Roman government to do it. And so what's happening here is Jesus, uh, uh, John the Baptist is going, Hey, hey, look, look, you think it's about your comfort and security, but it's not. You've got to change the way you think. You know what? You also think it's about being in control. Like being able to exert force and do what you want and have what you want in that moment to have everything you need readily available to you at all times. You think it's about your control, right? He's going, but you don't have to be in control. Here's the reason because if you think about it enough, you know you're not in control anyway, right? Control is an illusion. So the more you think about it, and go, I'm not in control. God's in control. So if God's in control, why am I even trying to be in control? Let me trust God, right? Thoughts, beliefs. Now all of a sudden, you don't have the anxiety of worrying about losing something because you're not in control anyway. You have no idea whether or not you or a child will get some kind of diagnosis in the next couple weeks, right? You have no idea, so you're not in control. So he's going, hey, "Hey, hey, tax collectors, can we just can we change the way we think and just to submit that God's actually the one in control? Change your beliefs, change your feelings, change your actions." And he says, "Don't take more than you're authorized to do." And then he said, "This soldiers also asked him. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do?" And he said to them. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. And be content with your wages. He goes, hey, you like your power. You really do like your power. Like your power. But if you have that power, that means you should follow Jesus and serve the least of these. Not extort people. Not force it on them. But how can you get, use what you have not for your power and your gain, but for service of others? Right, so he's taking these things that we cling to as Americans, our comfort and our security and our control and our power, and he's going, no, 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 these things, these things you've been given are actually given to you for only one reason, so that you could remove the obstacle so that people could see Jesus. You got some influence? You should use influence. You got some extra resources? You should use the resources. Right, whatever those things are, there is a mission. He's going, hey, what shall we do? And what he's really saying is this word, really, restitution. He's just saying hey, how do we make things right? Like, how, do we, how do we participate in making those things right? So How do we, how do we give back these things, right? What, the word restitution, you know what it means? It means to restore to its proper owner. That's all it means. Remember this, I told you, the foreclosure, right? These people, they have God as their Savior and Lord, but all these obstacles are in the way, and so what you're doing in this restitution, when you're making things right, when you're apologizing, when you're owning things, when you're giving things away, what you're doing is going, hey, I just want to restore you to your proper owner. I just want you to see him and know him and be loved by him. And So what we're going to see for the next several weeks is we're going to see this challenge for the church to go and do these things, right? To give away what we have, not in some weird way where that's how God loves you, but to take a moral inventory, take an actual literal inventory and go, why has God given me what he's given me? And the real answer to that is so you can use it to remove obstacles so that people can see Jesus. You can't fix people, you can't save people, you can't save yourself. But you have been, God has been gracious to us. Why? So he can be gracious to others. And so the, the real fruit of this, as we wrap up, is this. Because I've wondered forever okay, if this is the case, why is it so hard for us to participate in this? And here's what I'm convinced of, guys. I'm convinced that we're not necessarily, we don't necessarily believe this is true. Like, do you really believe Jesus is the hope of the world? Do you really believe he's the one that can make a way where there is no way? Like, do you really believe that? Like, do you really want to share him with others? Or do you like your comfort, your power, your security, control more? Like, do you believe that? Do you really, really love him? Do you love him? Or do you love him? Like, can, because if that doesn't change, then none of our actions are going to change. Like, do you really, really know him? And do you really, really love him? And here's the last one. And the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song about our Jesus that we love, right? Do you really, really love him? Do you really, really know him? And here's, here's the kicker. And do you love people the way that he loves people? Right? I don't know. Are you, you know, a Republican or a Democrat? Do you love the other side of the aisle as much as Jesus does? Right? If, if you're very pro-life and hate abortion, do you love those who have had an abortion this week the way that Jesus does? Right? If you're... Whatever that is, do you love Jesus, and then do you love others the way that he loves them? You love others the way that he loves them. So just for a second, can we just pause as we sing the song together and actually think about do we love Jesus when that changes? When we literally start loving Jesus and loving others the way he does, and all of a sudden our beliefs will change about how we interact with people, and then our feelings will change because the God of the universe is available to us. What what else could go wrong, right? And then eventually our actions will change in the way that we respond to others. So would you join me as we sing the song in closing?
1: Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Pastor Josh is actually outside saying goodbye to those joining us in the parking lot. We want to remind you that if you're inside, to please wait until your aisle is dismissed. And I just want to leave you with this. It's from Romans 15, 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you overflow with that hope to those around you this week, and we'll see you back next week.